It was great to, to get the update from the Coles. And let me just share with you, I was talking to them this week, and they already have refugees that have moved into the house even before they got there. They are definitely going to go back. And the church that they're serving, the homes are opening to the refugees coming in from the Ukraine. So thank you for your prayers and your support. And those of you that have made donations towards that. And if you want to make a donation to help those in Ukraine, they're doing uh, distribution of food and relief and getting clothes in and any kind of support possible. You can just give to Kingdom Builders, put down Ukraine. We'll make sure it gets sent over there. We're working together with the Association of Churches in the whole region to really show and express the love of God and, and continue to pray. It's just such a heartbreak to see what's taking place. And let's pray for God's peace to prevail over this and that there would be a quick resolve. And if you don't mind, remember our workers in Russia. We've been in touch with them, and we have a number of workers that are there. And at this point, they have determined they want to stay in the country, and they feel that they can still continue to serve and be effective and minister. So let's pray for their protection and safety. So through the week, as you're remembering them, Thank you so much for doing that, and that's a really, really good update. And we did ask the Coles, are you going to go back? And they said, absolutely, we want to be there, we want to be on the ground, so let's pray for safety and protection as they go as well. Well, get your Bibles out and uh, get your Portico app. We're going to jump right in. We're in a series called Understanding Jesus. It is so good to see all of you. I thought you would all go south to the warm weather this week. So thank you for staying home and being a part of my life for a little while. It's so good to have you here. I know many people are taking advantage of the opportunity to travel, but as we're going through the service, they're going to join us online today, and it's good to have them joining us that way as well. And we're going to take a look at our series. We're talking about understanding Jesus. And today we want to look at the aspect of how, you know, Jesus connected in with a very, very specific group of people. So while we're getting ready, i got a question for you. How many of you belonged to a club of some kind at some point in your life? Just hold your hand up real, real high. Okay, there we go. There's our club people. Good. Th this is the thing. I belong to one as well. When I was young, I was finally able to join a club. You know, it's a members-only type of thing. And I got my uniform, and I got my cap, and I had my insignia. We had a special salute. I had joined an elite survivalist club, and I was so excited. Well, it's called Cub Scouts. But... <laughs> You know, it, it, was just, it was just a club I was able to join, and I can remember how excited I was because I get to put the uniform on, and that meant I was in, I belonged, and everybody knew that when I walked down the street, they'd look at my shirt, and they'd see my sash, and they'd see my, you know, the awards and the badges that I won, and they go, there's a Cub Scout, he's part of the Cubs program. And we even had our own salutes. How many were in Cubs or Scouts? You remember the salute? Let's see it. There we go, hold it up high, nice and proud, that's it, get it together, good, beautiful. We had our own salute. That's the thing about clubs, right? We have inside language, we have inside traditions, we have inside ways of conveying and communicating to each other, and sometimes inadvertently, by conveying our inside conversations, those who are outside feel further outside, and Jesus bumped up against this because sometimes organized religion is like a club. And sometimes organized religion makes people feel like maybe I'm an outsider, I'm not an insider. And you know we have inside language, right, for the church? Oh, yeah, we've got all kinds of... We have, you know, unique handshakes, we use language, words, we use descriptions for rooms, and if people came, they go... I don't use any of those in the mall or at my workplace. So we have things we're comfortable with, not necessarily wrong, but we have inside language. And Jesus started to bump up against people that were definitely challenged by organized religion, and we want to see how that plays out. But we thought we'd go to social media and ask you, 
How did you feel? Were you ever challenged? Was there some difficulties that you encountered? So here's the way that when we went out there, we posed the question this way. What are some of the challenges that you faced with organized religion? And here are the responses that came back. Let's go, first one up on the screen here. Rules and regulations stemming from passed down traditions and culture, not faith. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to identify. Uh, we know a number of people responded this way. Very interesting, isn't it, how religion can really get bonded and tied into traditions and customs rather than around the focus of faith? Here was another response that was quite interesting. This person said, it comes to a point where you're just following suit and you're not really making it your own. It's no longer personal. You're just kind of drifting with the rest of the crowd. Interesting reflection. Here was the third one. That feeling like I'm not, I'm not meeting the standard to be loved by God. And that one just kind of made me pause and go, wow. That if we ever get to the place where religion and organized religion makes people feel that they don't count, they don't measure up, they don't qualify, that somehow they can't achieve the, you know, God's standard of love then maybe something's broken. Here's what's interesting. I was reading this passage of Scripture we're going to share, and I realized that in the text that we're going to read in a moment that basically all three of these reflections begin to surface. And Jesus had a conversation, very, very unique conversation, in fact, and he talked to an individual, and this individual began to, at first, a little abruptly point out some of this, and then as the conversation evolves, you begin to see it get a little more intentional around the organized religion and the impact that it had. But the fascinating part for me was it all began with this little phrase that Jesus said, can I have a drink of water? And it was in that moment that suddenly a conversation begins to pour out that it's worth our time today to have a look at because we want to live like Jesus, amen? We want to be like him, understand, and grow like him. And so how do we handle it when we bump up against organized religion? So get your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 4, and let's have a look at what John writes to the believers, a story in the life of Jesus, down in verse 3. So he, that being Jesus, left Judea, and he returned to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria on the way. And eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily down beside a well about noontime. And soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, would you give me a drink? Now, here's the wrinkle in the story. See, we don't always pick it up, and if you're familiar with the Scripture, you may get this, but if you're newer to faith or on a journey of faith, you might not pick this up. When, when John wrote those words that Jesus had to go through Samaria, the readers, John's audience, the first century readers, you would have almost heard an audible gasp when the word Samaria was used. For Jesus to say he had to go through Samaria, that would have caused any devout Jew a moment of severe hesitation. they go, Why? Why are you doing that? Now, there's some history that we want to just step into for a moment and share because any God-fearing Jew would avoid Samaria at all possible costs. I'm going to put a map on the screen because I want to do a little bit of a, just a quick history lesson for all of us. Let's have a look here. Can you give me the map of the first century at the time of Jesus? And we'll share it with you. Or There we are. Thank you, guys. So here's a picture of what it looked like in the land. So I want you to look down at the bottom of the screen. See the big blue circle? Everybody with me? All right, that circle, there's Jerusalem right in the middle. Jesus is ministering down in this region. And John is telling us that Jesus wants to go up north to where that blue star is, up in the region of Galilee. And you go, well, 
okay, just go north, Jesus. I mean, if I've got to go to Orangeville, I get in the car, I drive north, I go to Orangeville. That's what we do. Here's what's interesting about first century Jews. There was such a deep rift between the Jews and the Samaritans, and that's that aqua blue region in the middle, that they would avoid it at all possible costs. So the blue dotted lines that you see on the screen that go way out to the left, way out to the right along the Jordan River, those were the permissible travel routes for a devout Jew. If you needed to go to Galilee or you needed to go to Jerusalem, now remember, you go, well, that's not a big deal. Don't go north, don't go south. Three times a year, there were pilgrimage feasts that required you to be in Jerusalem to worship the Lord your God. Three times a year, you and your family made your way down to Jerusalem. Three times a year, you took extreme routes to avoid the shortest route to go to Jerusalem because you refused to go through a land called Samaria. And you might be going, why? Why did they do that? So this goes all the way back about 800 years before the time of Jesus. Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom. Southern Kingdom was basically the area of Judea. That was the Southern Kingdom of Israel. The Northern Kingdom consisted of Samaria and Galilee. So the kingdom had split. They were separated. And they were drifting in their faith and their allegiance to God. So much so that back at 722 BC, finally at this point in time, where the Northern Kingdom had just repeatedly disobeyed God, God allowed Assyria to come in, capture the land, deport the people out, And they now occupy the region that's northern Israel, which is now Samaria and Galilee. And so they're out of the land and you got the Jews, which is the southern kingdom, living down in Judea. When they deported the people from Samaria out, what Assyria would do, the king of Assyria would do, is he would take other nations he conquered and take those deportees and put them into the land. So look at that map. That means Assyria, over up to the top right-hand side, has moved all kinds of other nations of people into the aqua blue and up into the Galilee region. So they've repopulated the land with other deportees of conquered nations. And when they were living there, they were worshiping their gods And the Bible says that lions came out and began to attack them because they realized that they weren't worshiping the true God. So the king of Assyria sent some of the the Jews who had lived there back into the land and said, go teach him your ways. Teach him how to worship the Lord your God. Is this familiar to anybody? You remember this in the Bible? Okay, teach him how to worship. So they go back in. They teach him how to worship. They begin to worship Jehovah again. But now we got attention because the people in Judea southern kingdom in the brown zone, they are pure ethnic Jews. But the people in Samaria are now mixed race because they're intermarrying. And you have these nations of people that have intermarried together. And so now the Jews are going, you are not part of the true children of Israel. And the Samaritans are going, yes, we are because we were in the land and now we worship the Lord your God as well. And so you've got this incredible deep rift that takes place. So eventually, fast forward, you didn't know you were going to get a history lesson, did you? All right, so we got the northern kingdom out of the picture, southern kingdom. So they're still disobedient, and Babylon comes in and takes the southern kingdom out. So now the entire land has been overrun by outsiders, and this is just the story of the Middle East, if you want to go look at this. When they're finally allowed to return back, and they come back into the land under Zerubbabel, and they get to start to rebuild the temple, where do they go? They go down to the region of Judea, to Jerusalem where the temple is and they're going to rebuild the temple. So now you're starting for the rebuild of the temple and some of them go back up and settle up in the Galilee region. So you're down in Judea and up in Galilee is where the Jews begin to resettle but not in Samaria. We're not going to settle there. Now, real fast part of the story. 
when they start to rebuild the temple, the people living in the region of Samaria find out and they come along and they go, can we help you? We would like to rebuild. And the Jews go, no. You're not part of us. You're a mixed race. You're not part of us. And they said, but we worship the same God as you. Go, no, you're not part of us. That created such a deep rift that the Samaritans actually formed an opposition and began to spread fear and intimidation and contacted and bribed officials to put a stop work order on the rebuilding of the temple. So you got all this taking place. It boiled in the land. So by the time Jesus comes along, nobody went through Samaria. And Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. The red line in the middle, that red line, if you follow it, it'll go all the way up to the north. Shortest route possible. But a good God-fearing Jew wouldn't go there. And yet John tells us Jesus had to go through Samaria. So you look at the text and you have to ask yourself, why did Jesus have to go to Samaria? Was he in that much of a hurry that he needed to go into the land? Was there something that urgent that his family would have taken the other routes? He had been to the temple many times. Read the Gospels and you read about him going down to the temple. His family had taken the other routes. Why would Jesus go this way? And I think this is the story for us today because he's going to have a little bit of an encounter with a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well, and they're going to bump up against organized religion. And I want to see what Jesus does when it comes to dealing with organized religion and how it affects our lives today. So let's have a look at it. Take notes. Get your apps out. Write down a couple of thoughts. First one is this. Jesus challenged religious exclusivity. This was absolutely mind-boggling. Think about his disciples. They had been raised to avoid going into Samaria. They had opted to follow Jesus because he's the rabbi. This is the one who's claiming to be the Messiah. This is the one who's going to redeem and restore Israel. This is the one we're going to follow and give our allegiance to. And then he says one day, hey guys, Let's go to Samaria. And they're going like, uh, let's not. And say we did. See, we, we don't understand the cultural implications of this. They're immediately thinking, we're going to get banished from the synagogue. We're going to get rejected from the temple. We're going to have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're going to be all over us for this. How, how could we defile ourselves by going into Samaria? And Jesus goes, no, I need to go. So they follow along. They're tracking right along with them. And the Bible tells us that Jesus gets to this village of Sychar around noontime, tired from the journey. They go off to find food. While they're off finding food, this is where we're going to jump into it. Jesus encounters a woman and asks her a question. And he said, would you give me a drink of water? And I love, this is just a powerful story. Now watch what happens. We'll put it in the, up on the screen, but it's in your notes. John chapter 4, verse 9. And the woman was surprised by this. For Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And you can almost sense this. Her words are saturated with disbelief and they are dripping with cynicism. You're a Jew. I mean, that was, you might as well pick up a stone and throw it. That's what she was doing. What are you doing asking me? You people won't even come into our land. You treat us like dogs. And here you are asking me. And then she ups the ante a little bit. It's not just a religious thing now. said, and you're a man and I'm a woman. You don't talk to women. We're not even viewed in the same class. 
And there was an unspoken caveat because John put it in the text, but it didn't mean anything for us. He said it was about noontime that Jesus sat down for a drink of water, and you go, so big deal. Well, if you were a good woman, you would go early in the morning or you'd go late in the afternoon, and you'd never go by yourself to get water. But if you were a woman of questionable character, you'd go when nobody else was there, and you'd go when nobody else could challenge you. So by the way the story is framed, we understand from the social context at the time, it's very likely that she was either a prostitute or was certainly had the morals that had ostracized her from community. Listen carefully. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. She delineated for Jesus in one sweeping statement every form of exclusivity that human beings impose on each other. Race, religion, gender, and status. She just dumped it all right out there. Now you have to ask the question, why did Jesus go to Samaria? Because he knew there was one woman that needed to encounter him personally. There's somebody that needed to know God's love and God's unconditional love and acceptance and forgiveness. So he doesn't flinch. This is the part of the story that I just marvel. Jesus doesn't flinch. He just is filled with compassion and he begins to engage her in a conversation and he starts talking about living water and this water that she'll never have to thirst. And if you watch and read the story, and please read it. We don't have time to go through it all today, but in John chapter 4, especially if you're new to the Bible, read it. It's powerful. But he doesn't condemn her. He just continues to feed her opportunity. And he begins to tear down all the forms of exclusivity that had created barriers in her life. And I just summarized it this way in my own mind when I was thinking about the text. Organized religion is frequently culpable for the harsh forms of exclusivity that we impose on people. So often under the banner of religion, we do what we think is right, but we exclude people. And Jesus was living in two opposing tensions of Judea and Samaria. And he's going, I've got Jews and I've got Samaritans and they both believe they're right. And they're missing, they're missing what God is doing in the middle of their midst right now. And you go, oh, well, I would never do that. I would never be a person that excludes. We wouldn't honestly do that. I don't think we would knowingly and intentionally try to do that. But Jesus found ways to get us to think. Did you notice that? He has this interesting way to get us to think a little bit. So Matthew chapter 7, he said this, Why do you worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? Now that's pretty visual. And he goes on to say, you know, how can you even think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't even see past the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, get rid of the log in your eye and you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Jesus was talking about we have, we have ways of pointing faults out on other people. We have ways of imposing exclusivity on other people where they feel outside of where the inside group is. And Jesus just challenges all forms of exclusivity. And I see it in this heart of mercy towards this woman and the wonder and the grace that she begins to embrace through him. And here's the thing I want you to think about. Jesus always created space for safe conversations. You notice when you read this story, those of you who are familiar with it, he never tried to argue her into heaven. Like an onion, he just kept peeling away the layers of resistance. He made it safe. He made her feel valued and accepted and understood. 
And I think that's one of our challenges is sometimes we're always on the defense. We're always ready to attack then and we're always ready to go out. And that's what religion will do. We'll try to defend and protect. But Jesus wasn't worried about that. He didn't have to defend anything. He was just bringing the truth of grace into this woman's life. So he creates this space. And so now you got her at this place where they're already wrestled through this tension of, you know, who is she and who is he and as a Jew. And so Jesus realizes there's some curiosity now. She's feeling comfortable. And he goes, why don't you go call your husband? And she goes, well, I don't have a husband. In fact, let's read it. Your Bibles are open? Let's go down to verse 17. I love her response. She says, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right. Now you don't, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you're not even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Did you notice there's no condemnation here? There's no criticism. There's no harsh words that he spoke. He didn't pull back and recall and go, oh my gosh, do you know what kind of woman you are? See, the Pharisees were quick to point that out. Jesus really knew if he was a righteous man, he'd know the woman that's touching him right now. She's a sinner. Don't touch the leper. They're a sinner. Why are you going to Zacchaeus' house? He's a sinner. Everybody's pretty quick pointing out the labels. But Jesus doesn't do this. He just has this wonderful way when people feel excluded of bringing them back into the story. And when Jesus said, you certainly spoke the truth. What an affirming statement, isn't it? So she's feeling pretty good. Now look at her response in verse 19. Sir, I can see you're a prophet. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That through a word of knowledge, he just said, uh, you've had five husbands and the guy you're now with is not your husband. And she goes, you must be a prophet. Well, that's, yeah, that's in insightful in the moment. Now, I'm going to just press pause so I don't want you to lose this here because he's challenging religious exclusivity. But those of you that like to press just maybe a little bit deeper beneath the surface of what's going on, remember all that history I shared with you at the beginning? And you go, what was that all about? So when Jesus pointed out through a word of knowledge to this woman, he said, you've had five husbands. If you are a student of Scripture and you've studied the text, and if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 24, you'll discover that when the king of Assyria repopulated the land of Samaria, he sent five nations into the land. There were five nations of different deportees that were sent into the land and if you remember Scripture, those of you who are familiar, if you're not new, that's okay. If you're not, that's okay. It's new. God always refers to himself as the husband of Israel, and she was often the errant or wayward bride. And so while Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman, the readers of the text, especially in the first century, would have, their ears would have been alive to this. They would have been going, oh my gosh, Samaria has had five husbands. And their worship the way they are right now is not with the true God, the one true God. And so there was a lot of depth going on in the background here. All right, that's just a sidebar. You can take that and think about that for a little bit because if you want to talk about nations that pursue righteousness, we have to make sure that the husband that we're pursuing is actually the right husband. So here Jesus says, you're right, you spoke truthfully. The man you're not with right now is not your husband. So here's where things start to get very, very interesting. So number two, write this down. Jesus deconstructed organized religion. So she's feeling pretty safe. He didn't condemn her for her past. She wasn't feeling convicted. She wasn't feeling ostracized. They were just having a really, really good conversation. 
And so Jesus made sure that he just kept the conversation going. Now watch what happens. Here's the question. She asks something that could be absolutely polarizing and divisive. Verse 20, looking at Jesus, she said, So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim that it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped. So she points out the historical rift that has divided these two nations. You wouldn't let us build the temple with you. So we went to our own mountain in Samaria and we built our own temple. So our ancestors worshipped here. You say we're supposed to worship there. What is she doing? Now we got religion up in the forefront. She was feeling safe enough to have a conversation about religion. And she wants to know... Where do you stand on this? And I'll tell you, when people get into conversations about religion, you might as well get the bandages and the suture tape out because it's going to get bloody and get messy, isn't it? Anytime religion comes to the forefront, we start throwing stones. But Jesus doesn't go there. And that's what's powerful about this text. He begins to deconstruct this whole thing. And as she begins to deconstruct it, you can feel the tension begin to leave the story. And we're going to jump into it in a moment. But he said, I'm telling you, there's a day coming. In fact, it's now here that you'll neither worship in Jerusalem or on this mountain, but you'll worship God in spirit and the truth. We'll go to that verse in a minute. But they're embroiled in this conversation about religion. And Jesus deconstructs. He goes, you guys think you have it right and the Jews think they have it right. We're going to get this all figured out. Look at John chapter 4, verse 21 to 22. Here it is. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews, now watch this, we know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. Notice that word? Didn't say salvation comes to the Jews. What does it say? Through. Salvation comes through. God had raised up Israel to be a light to the nations of the world. And in religion, they had fortified themselves and had made everything exclusive to themselves only and not to the rest of the world. And this, friends, is what religion does all the time. It draws lines in the sands. It forms barriers and barricades. It says who's in and who's out. Listen, I thought about this in the whole temple. I wrote it down this way. The temple was to be a place to worship, and religion had made it the focus of worship. And this is the essence of the challenge when you read the Gospels over and over. They were pr trying to protect the focus of their worship. Everything was about the temple ritual, the temple practices. Jesus flipping tables over in the temple. This was upsetting everybody because the temple had become the focus of their worship. They forgot that God presided behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. That God says, you build a temple and I will dwell with you. Not in the building. God was coming to be with his people and he wanted to be with his people so they could reflect the glory of God to the nations of the world. But what they did is they would reduce it down to symbolism and practice and rituals and customs. So all of that became the focus of their worship. Can I press pause for a moment and say, you know, sometimes I think we lose generations in the church because we impose, we impose our forms of worship on them rather than inform them of the way of faith. You need to worship the way I do. You need to practice the way I do. You need to do what I do, rather than saying, 
you need to see and understand the God that I know. And that's where so much challenge comes in. I had a wonderful conversation at the end of the last service with an individual going through the exact same thing going, we're just we're trying to reconcile all of the pain that we went through as a family because we were forcing and forming and trying to press things into place for our kids, not realizing we were doing it innocently, but not even realizing that we were so focused on, like you said, the form of religion that we forgot about the sincerity of the faith and the person that we focus And for God, it was never about the temple. It was about his presence. And that's what the people were missing. And so Jesus, he takes all of this out. It doesn't matter if you go to the high place in Samaria. It doesn't matter if you go to the high place in Jerusalem. Those are not the places where God dwells. And that is not where worship takes place. And Jesus said, it's going to be done in spirit and truth. And so Jesus deconstructed man-made systems that were associated with the law. That's what got him in trouble over and over and over. But he never deconstructed faith or theology or a relationship with God. And that was the fine line that you always had to find your way through. And he would talk about that. And people would always get upset. You're changing the rituals. You're changing the practice. You're changing the custom. And Jesus goes, no, I'm not worried about that. I'm trying to show you the Father. I'm trying to reveal his heart for you so that you can see who he is. Religion will get in the way. In fact, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 23. This is very insightful about the Pharisees said to the people, he said, practice and obey whatever they tell you to do, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. And they crush people with unbearable religious demands that, and they never lift a finger to ease the burden and everything they do is just for show. He said, that's what religion does. Religion makes a lot of, a lot of noise and puts a lot of pressure, and builds a lot of expectations. But even the people that promote it don't even follow it. And he was inviting people to come back in. It touched the New Testament church. There was a time when the New Testament church was flourishing. And it was really beginning to take off. And all of a sudden, Gentiles are coming into the church. And they're, by faith, believing in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And some of the Jews that had been converted, the Messianic Jews, are going, wait, 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 wait. They better be circumcised if they're going to be a part of this church. And they're going, well, that's got nothing to do with us. That was a Jewish custom. That was a Jewish ritual. No, 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 no. You want to be in this church? And they're going to start, and they, start, they, had, they actually had to call a council in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, to figure this out. And they said, don't impose. Don't impose forms of exclusivity on people that make them feel alienated from God. But find the things that are common to faith and build one another up in the faith. And there's this power that is unleashed when we understand that Jesus deconstructs religion so that we can actually see who God is. And if you want a little more insight, look at John 4, 27. It gets better. It's such a good story, isn't it? Look what happens. So his disciples came back. They were off looking for food. They were out looking for McDonald's. So they came back. And look what John says. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. It gets better. But none of them had the nerve to ask. So here they come back and they're going like, Peter, you ask him. No, I'm not going to ask him. John, you're, you love him. He loves you. That's what you told us. You ask, I'm not asking Jesus. No way. None of them. They were already struggling with the destination that they were on, the route they'd taken. They're in Samaria. They're in no man's land. And they see Jesus. And remember, this is challenging for them. He's a rabbi. Religious practice, never be alone with a single woman or with a woman. Stay clear of that. 
And as a religious rabbi, why are we in Samaria? So they didn't even want to ask Jesus the question. And oftentimes, can I just say this? Sometimes we're more comfortable living in our systems of religion because we don't want to ask the question. And we stay in the ritual. But Jesus doesn't let them stay there. And he's going to draw it out of them. Because they're going to say, do you want something to eat? And he said, oh, I got food you don't even know about. Well, who fed them? Who fed them? Who showed up and fed them? And he goes, you guys are missing this whole thing. He said, my food comes from above. He said, it's not four more months to the harvest. I'm telling you, it's now. So while Jesus is trying to convey to them that there they are on mission in Samaria and this woman's life, what happened to this woman? As she's talking to Jesus, we'll quickly wrap this up. She's talking to Jesus. And she said, sir, you know, they they said the one who is the Messiah is supposed to come. And he said, and I am he. I am the Messiah. And she is so blown away and buys into faith in that moment because of how Jesus treated her. And what does she, she do? She goes back to her village. Remember, she's ostracized. She's an outcast. She's been excluded. She goes back to her village and she starts telling everybody, come and see the one who has told me everything about my past. He knows everything. Could this be the Messiah? And John tells us she becomes one of the greatest evangelists of the New Testament because people start to come to see Jesus. And so some of your translations, Jesus said, look, the fields are white unto harvest. And so scholars believe that probably it refers to the Samaritan dress, the white of their, their clothing as they come out towards Jesus. And he's telling his disciples, you say four months to the harvest? I say, no, look, right now. Now is the time of the harvest. People are coming to hear, which really takes us to the third thought. And I want you to write this one down. In the story, Jesus extends unconditional grace. He doesn't get trapped and embroiled in conversations of religion. He just extends to this woman and extends to every one of us his unconditional grace. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, we go back to it and it says, The time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and the truth. And the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus went to extraordinary lengths to include all whom organized religion has excluded. Why did Jesus go to Samaria? Because there was a woman who needed to understand that she was loved. She was accepted. She was forgiven. And the power of one life transformed by grace turns their entire village upside down. And they come out and they place their faith in Jesus and even say to her, we, we now believe, not because you told us your story, we believe because we've heard and seen him for ourselves. See, when people actually encounter Jesus, they don't encounter religion. And if the Jesus they encounter from us looks like religion, then we have to rethink who our Jesus is. That's why we're asking, do we understand our Jesus? This is the moment of God's grace. It's not delineated by how we can exclude people. It's delineated by how we create encounters where grace can be extended regardless of our past, regardless of our pain, regardless of our hurt. And I would venture to say all of us would love to meet Jesus like this. But I could probably also say quite, oh yeah, with a high level of assurance, most of us probably encountered religion before we encountered Jesus. And sometimes it was well-intentioned. They didn't mean to come across that way. But when you look at how Jesus approached this and you look at the nature of his life, 
It's not about temples. It's not about styles. It's not about worship styles. It's not about form. It's not about customs. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. John chapter 3, 16 and 17. For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. In verse 17, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That, friends, is the power of God's grace, the power of the gospel. That's how Jesus dealt with organized religion. He doesn't see it as an insider-outsider. He saw us as lost sheep trying to find our way back to the Father, and he came to point us back to the Father. And so when we look at the world and we look at how he handled us, my prayer for all of us is that we wouldn't, we wouldn't be people who are the advocates of religion, but we would be the people who can open up the pathway to relationship and show people what the Father really looks like. So it leaves two questions in my mind. I guess my first question would be this. What is your Samaria? What's my Samaria? Because I think we all have them. Maybe it's the neighbor across the street. Different ethnic origin, different background, different worship practice rituals. We had a neighbor move in just a little over a year ago. Started to decorate their house for the different celebrations and different customs. I remember walking across the street just to introduce myself, welcome them to the neighborhood. I love it. I love that they're there. The chance to build relationship. I could have gone across and said, don't you know you're wrong? Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life and lost the conversation before it ever began. But building bridges of understanding and acceptance. Maybe they choose to fly a rainbow flag and you have strong feelings about what that represents or doesn't properly represent. See, we have Samarias that are the unspoken regions, the unspoken people that often we don't want to step into. So we just avoid it all. And we keep it under the mask of really, what's, what's your Samaria? Maybe the Spirit is saying to you today, saying to me, we must go to Samaria. Because there's one person, one person that needs a kind, understanding, sympathetic conversation. They need to see the Father. So I pray that we would be bold enough and adventurous enough to go into our Samarias. Second question that I had when I was reflecting on this. Who imposed religion on you? And what was the pain that it cost? I know that if I could talk to you, those of you that are watching online or you're in the room today, I think some of us have some pretty deep scars and right now you go, Doug, don't, 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 don't pull, the, don't pull the Band-Aid off the scars. Don't start digging away at that stuff. I finally worked my way through that. Jesus understood something with this woman. To bring healing, you have to present truth. And he was able to just peel back the layers until she understood that there's love there and acceptance there and forgiveness there. And that what well-intentioned people may have done that never represents the heart of the Father. And we may even be those well-intentioned people, but here's what I'd like to say. If you've ever been wounded by those who are part of what you would call organized religion, or you felt the pain or you felt the bruise, please don't assume that that's the heart of the Father. Just give a little bit patience into that side of the world and come back and look at Jesus. Look at what he does. 
and recognize that all he does is points us back to who God is. God loves you. God is your true father. And God is the one that offers us peace and hope and true eternal life. And friends, when you discover that, you'll run to any village and tell people about the one who truly knows you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, this morning I thank you for the truth and the power of your word. I pray, Spirit, that you would speak to us. That these wouldn't be words of history and information, but they would be words of life and transformation. Holy Spirit, show us where our individual Samarias are, the place, the neighborhoods, the people that maybe we walk to the outskirts on. And I pray that you would fill us with new love and compassion, new purpose and mission to say, I will go. I will go into those areas because I have opportunity. And with your love, Father, I will represent you. And Lord, I also pray for those that are in the room listening to my voice as well. If they've been hurt and damaged, pain has been inflicted, they've been excluded under the banner of religion. I pray, Father, that healing and forgiveness and release would be there and that they would recognize, Lord, that we were never called into the, it's man-made. Religion is just man's attempt to reach you. But you're the creator of relationship. You're the one that shows us the way home. So may today they feel the love of the Father by the indwelling presence of your spirit. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.